Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. The summer of 1922 was a hot one, and in New York at least, those who could fled the city to escape temperatures climbing into the mid-90s that made even the current lighter women's fashions uncomfortable. And for men, the still-required hats and ties made a muggy day intolerable in the steamy city. 1922 was unquestionably an interesting year, with important cultural eras beginning and ending all at once. In Europe, the great chronicler of Paris's Belle Epoque society, Marcel Proust, had died. In America, Judy Garland, the girl who was to send everyone's hopes and dreams over the rainbow forevermore, was born. The country was dedicated to celebrating its democratic heroes, and in May of that year, the moving and patriotic Lincoln Memorial was finally completed and opened in Washington, D.C. for a reverential public. America was changing. The country had made it through a war, and the new world that followed kicked so many of the 19th century social customs that had once defined it to the curb in favor of loosened morals, bobbed hair, brighter lipsticks, and the sounds to come of Duke Ellington, and a sense that a whole new party was just beginning that was never going to stop. Women now had the vote, but yes, there still was prohibition. But didn't that just make drinking in dark, sultry speakeasies even more fun? The rigid rules that once governed society, that is to say, that once had determined just what society was, didn't work anymore. These old ideas that function to exclude, not include, applied to a gilded world that the new generation ignored or was more than happy to forget ever had existed. New people were everywhere and new societies forming anywhere you looked. Immigrants were a crucial part of the American social fabric as they had been since the mid-19th century. Everyday folk from all over were moving to the expanding cities at a rapid pace, and everyone was looking for a way to move up in society, however one defined it now. In July of 1922, an authoritative appearing volume of over 600 pages appeared on bookstore shelves. Its title, at least on the cover, was simply Etiquette. But yet, when curious readers opened the impressive royal blue cover, they found a fuller clarification of the subject at hand. Etiquette in society, in business, in politics, and at home. Etiquette books were nothing new, 
or were they? The mid-19th century was full of instruction manuals on how to behave at a ball, use your sorbet spoon, and to make sure not to drink your finger bowl. But none of that really mattered, or perhaps not in the same way now. The country that was emerging from not only the dimmed Gilded Age as well as the First World War wanted to move up and get ahead, and knowing how to behave in this swirling, changing social game that merged everyone together required advice and a roadmap. The woman who gave that particular advice in this case was not an unknown. She was a working woman, a divorced single mother, an accomplished and published novelist, and who, by her own modest admission, was an unlikely conduit of this kind of information. But she, too, had emerged from the restrained, gilded age, and out of determination and necessity, had to create her own vision of what society really was, and how she herself fit into it. She was, in fact, perfect for the challenge. And she was Emily Post. Today's show is indeed a special one. We are celebrating the 100th anniversary of the publication of Emily Post's Etiquette. I will be joined by Emily Post's great-great-granddaughter, Lizzie Post, an author, speaker, podcaster, and co-director of the Emily Post Institute, who has just, along with her cousin Daniel Post-Senning, completely rewritten Emily Post's etiquette for us today. You'll be surprised at how modern Emily herself was in 1922, and with Lizzie and Dan's brilliant new edition, how best we can interpret that today. I'm Carl Raymond, host of the Gilded Gentleman History Podcast, where every two weeks I take you beneath the glitter and the gold to show you the world's light and dark of America's Gilded Age, France's Belle Epoque, and England's late Victorian and Edwardian eras. Emily Post, as her biographer Laura Claridge notes in her title, was a daughter of the Gilded Age. She was born in Baltimore in 1872, just 10 years after the great writer Edith Wharton was born in New York. As a child, Emily moved to New York with her parents, her mother from a wealthy Pennsylvania coal mining family, and her father, the renowned architect Bruce Price, who was to design and create the exclusive society enclave of Tuxedo Park north of New York City. As a child, two things that Emily loved were following her father to his various appointments with clients and absorbing everything she heard about design, architectural style, and interior planning. She'd even expressed a desire to be an architect herself. That would not be possible. A dear friend of the Price family, Frank Hopkinson Smith, an engineer, had been charged with building the base for the monumental Statue of Liberty in New York's Great Harbor. With her father's permission, Emily accompanied Uncle Frank to the site and spent hours playing in the curious and hidden spaces in the evolving statue, creating her own imaginary castles inside the famous bronze colossus of Lady Liberty. A second passion for the young Emily was for amateur theatricals in which she appeared in the clubhouse at Tuxedo Park. The life of an actress was another difficult path, certainly for girls from proper families. 
Indeed, Emily's innate ability to command an audience never left her. And I'm sure that as a child, she never suspected that as an adult, she would command an audience indeed. And that audience was all of America. Her name and her voice were to indelibly seep into the country's culture. Many years later, as Emily's presence and work grew into an American cultural cornerstone, it's been written that two of the most taken and never returned books from libraries over the years have been the Bible and Emily Post's Etiquette. Emily married the banker and financier Edwin Post in 1892 at Tuxedo Park on another sweltering summer day. In the years that followed, the couple had two sons, Edwin and Bruce. Emily's life was filled with the standard social demands and dinners and engagements that required worth dresses, Tiffany silver, and an always filled case of engraved calling cards. Her marriage to Edwin proved a challenge. Her husband strayed from the home life with Emily and their sons into the company of a collection of actresses and chorus girls. Emily was forced to suffer the public indignity and further witness a case of blackmail against her husband. Through the ensuing court case covered by the voracious press, she sat in the courtroom, resolute, dressed in what would always be her favorite color, red. Emily and Edwin divorced in 1905, and Emily began to create a new path for herself. A natural writer and communicator, she began to write a series of articles on architecture and interior design for a variety of popular publications, including Harper's, Scribner's, and The Century. Just before her divorce, she began to turn her hand to the writing of novels and indeed published her first in 1904, a year before Edith Wharton's bestseller, The House of Mirth, captured New York's attention. Both Edith Wharton and Emily Post chose as their subjects the intricacies, successes, and failures of negotiating the society they saw before them. Perhaps the most important story in Emily's life took place one night at a dinner party in 1920. The story seems to have various versions, even in Emily's own telling of it. Following a discussion at dinner, the legendary editor of Vanity Fair, Frank Cronenshield, proposed to Emily that she write a book very simply telling people how to behave. Despite the fact that she really had been giving advice of sorts for years, either to personal friends or in the articles that she had been writing, she tossed off the idea and even indicated that the idea horrified her. And really, how boring. Cronenshield was relentless in his campaign to convince her. He clearly saw the market that was emerging that would make this book an enormous bestseller. As a result of enlisting the publisher Richard Duffy to join the campaign to convince her, Emily relented and was likely ultimately flattered. Emily Post began what one could say was her real career and discovered what was to become her substantial fame beginning when she was 50 years old. In the years that followed, editions of her original work have been continually revised and expanded by her descendants. New books have appeared as well, authored by various family members focusing on subjects such as weddings and etiquette in business. The woman who wanted to be an actress and an architect has, you could say, in the end, truly built for us a pretty solid foundation and infrastructure on how to all get along.
Joining me today to take a look at her great-great-grandmother and untangle a bit about just what etiquette really is and was for Emily and for us now is my guest today. To celebrate this 100th anniversary, I am so honored to be joined by Lizzie Post, who, as I mentioned at the beginning of the show, along with her cousin, Daniel Post-Senning, they have rewritten Emily's original book for today, which is now available wherever books are sold. Etiquette, the centennial edition, is published by 10 Speed Press. Lizzie is the co-president of the Emily Post Institute and has co-authored several books published by the Institute, including the 19th edition of Etiquette, in addition to books on wedding and business etiquette. She and Dan co-host a truly wonderful podcast called Awesome Etiquette, now in its fifth year, and my listeners, please subscribe to this one immediately. Lizzie, hello. I am so pleased and honored to welcome you to the Gilded Gentlemen. I'm so glad you're here. Coral, I'm so glad to be working with you and being here. I listen to the Gilded Gentlemen on my evening walks with my dog around my neighborhood. So it's really fun to be on the show. And then it's also really exciting to be with you because you worked with the fourth and the fifth generation of posts to run the Institute. And you worked with my parents' generation when you were at uh, HarperCollins. And it's really exciting to finally meet the man, the myth, the legend. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> well, I feel the same about you. And yes, it's true. I feel so passionate about the subject and the show and about Emily and your family because that's exactly right. I worked... Uh, you know when them I was, all. <laughs> well, when I was working at, at HarperCollins, yes, it was the 16th edition at that point, And I was a marketing director. And I worked with your family to market that and some of the other books being published at the time. So to come back now for the centennial edition and meet you and work with you, boy, it's really <laughs> talk about all in the family. It's very exciting. So I'd really like to take a look at Emily as as a woman. And I hinted okay. at some of that in my intro. She was a truly remarkable woman. And there are so many parts of, of her life what she did and what she stood for that I'm not sure people really are aware of those bits. So, Lizzie, just from your perspective, just who was and how would you describe your great-great-grandmother? It seems in so many ways she was a tremendously modern woman. I think tremendously modern woman is probably a great way to describe her. She was a real technophile. And so her big thing was was radios. She had a radio in every room of the house. That was the, the hottest technology of her day. And she really embraced looking toward future generations for what to write about when it came to etiquette. And as you know, her career in writing about etiquette, which is what she was most famous for doing in her life, was something that she started when she was 50. So this wasn't like, you know, something she knew she was going to do as a child or that in her teenage years, she really figured out this is who and what she should be in American society. It really came much, much later after a whole writing career. She also did some creating models for uh, home decor. And so it was she really had a kind of a number of different things under her belt. She wrote fiction before she wrote etiquette. But through it all, I think she had a pretty amazing personality. She was not perfect, first of all. And I think that humanizing her really helps people to identify with her and makes her advice a bit more attainable rather than just aspirational. 
But she was so she was fallible, which I think is a really good thing. <laughs> we all are. Um, yes. Right. But she also wasn't someone who she knew high society living, but she wasn't someone who loved it and felt it was the only way to live. And I think that made her tremendously popular because when she wrote Etiquette, she was able to envision some other versions of life. And that came into play. For instance, I always remember one section from the 1922 edition where she says that, you know, she describes this incredibly elaborate tea tray and you're just going, oh, my gosh, I'm, you know, a normal average person. I don't have any of that, let alone the butler to walk it in. And she then mentions that you may be a host serving off the simplest and tidiest of trays. And that may make for the most like beautiful and hospitable presentation ever. So she found ways, I think, of really including various walks of American life and that 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 really worked for her. But as a person, I mean, she could be really stubborn. She was headstrong. <laughs> she I, I, there were certain things in Laura Claridge's biography of her that made me identify. I think they talked about like at 40, her mom, you know, she's like figuring out what properties to rent out because she couldn't afford her life. And she's figuring out like her mom is dropping off groceries for her. I was like, hmm, at almost 40, this sounds a little familiar given the the recession and then everything that's hit in the past 15 years. And then it also talks about things like she's always trying to manage her weight. And I've had those struggles, too. I'm like, Emily, you're a very relatable person in my life. <laughs> well, I think that was one of the things that she certainly seems far more down to earth than most people may think that she was. Now, she certainly lived in the world of Gilded Age society. She came from a wealthy family, yes. all of that. But what she was talking about and what she was sharing was something that really had nothing to do with social status at all, right? This is something that anybody could take advantage of. I think she really felt that. And while you can certainly see in which ways history and, you know, who is her audience that she's talking to, we can certainly question those things and it's really good to examine it. But I always liked the fact that she, from the get-go, really felt like a lot of what she talked about did not, you didn't need money to buy class. And that was one of her big things, was that it just mattered not whether you were born into wealth or whether you came into it or whether you never touched it, but that we can all still be good to each other. We can all still create a sense of best society. But I want to go back a little bit in, in her life and look at her her influences. I think it's probably pretty fair to say that one of the strongest influences in her life was her father, Bruce Price. He was a noted, renowned, really, architect. And you had mentioned a few minutes ago that Emily even spent some time as an adult building architectural models of interior design. And as I mentioned in my intro, she at one point had even wanted to be an architect herself. But, you know... As a girl at that time, not so accessible. What was that influence that her father had on her? She loved her father. And biographers have, have wondered whether it was because there was this, a boy born into the family and he died. And so I think in some ways, Emily fulfilled that role of, of son and daughter for her father. And he took her, it's one of, I think one of the coolest parts of our family history was just how progressive her father, Bruce Price, was with her in particular. 
he saw that his daughter was interested in things and that she idolized her father. And rather than try and push her onto her mother, he really embraced it. He brought her with him to various buildings that he was working on and construction that was being done. And he asked her opinions about things. I mean, probably made her pretty precocious, but it also was, you know, something that really, I think, set her up well to treat children as people, which is actually one of her books later on in life. It's called Children Are People. But to just sort of not just create this world of, you know, be seen and not heard, which so many children were back in the day. One of the things, too, in looking at Emily's life, and you mentioned it as well a few minutes ago, that I really don't think people realize is her writing career. Emily was a working writer long before the idea of doing (laughs) a book on etiquette was a glimmer in anyone's eye. And she did both novels and some nonfiction. Can you talk a little bit about that and what she was doing and what she was writing? Because I think that's really interesting. Absolutely. So when Emily was a young, younger girl, younger woman, she went overseas abroad to Europe to do some traveling. And her letters back, her father said, were just so entertaining that he brought them to someone connected to the world of, of published authors. And he said, is there anything that could be done with this? And sort of Emily was going through a time. So she she had gone on these trips. She'd written these fabulous letters. And then she came home and she got married and she had a couple kids. And there's a whole divorce scandal that's going to happen in her life. And she comes out of it a single mother, basically. She's got these two boys. Finances aren't what they were when she was growing up. And she has to find a way to support herself. And so her her father kind of leans into her writing and she decides to take a stab at it. And they're where you hear Emily start toying with some of her first ideas about the roles of host and guest. And we we pick up kind of some of the early foundations of how this this writer and author might think about a topic like etiquette and social behavior. Emily began, as you mentioned, the project of writing etiquette really at, at midlife, as you said, when she was 50 years old. But she had at that point gone through, as you also alluded to, a pretty public divorce. In later years, she she lost one of her sons. I mean, th- there were some moments of, of, of difficulty and tragedy I- in her life and challenges. And how do you think she used those or addressed that experience in her work? I think that losing her son at a young age was really tough. And her father, I believe, died not shortly before that or after it was they she lost both her father and her son. And then, I mean, she loses her mother in a very horrific accident. The first version of etiquette that was written was in many ways a project for her to sink her teeth into to move through the grieving of of her son and I think also her father. And that was for her, the way she learned to handle things was to dig yourself into some kind of work or project, whether it's gardening. She had just bought a house on Martha's Vineyard that was actually a house I got to grow up going to in the summers, which was incredible. Our family does no no, no longer owns it, but it's still on Fuller Street. And when I'm here on the vineyard, I go and visit it and, and say hi to the gardens and everything. So whether it was the writing after the divorce, even though it wasn't etiquette yet, or it was the project of the, the Edgartown House on Martha's Vineyard, or 
the actual book of etiquette that she became so famous for. Those were all things that I think were in part inspired by some tough thing that she had to, to really get through. And I think that's an amazing life lesson, right, for all of us, is when things yeah. get tough to sort of dive into work. I think I think a lot of us do that. So and now, my listeners, we are going to take a brief break. And when we come back, we're going to dive into what etiquette actually is and what it meant for Emily and Lizzie, what it can all mean for us today. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Hear that? It's the call of the Crave. And when the Crave calls, you know what to do. Try the $5 Bacon Bundle, because the only thing better than a White Castle slider is a White Castle slider topped with crispy hickory-smoked bacon. So pick any two of either the Bacon Cheese Slider, 1921 Bacon Cheese Slider, or Chicken Bacon Ranch Slider, and also get a small fry for just $5 with the $5 Bacon Bundle. White Castle. Follow your Crave. This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun, and that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. And we're back. I'm Carl Raymond, host of the Gilded Gentleman History Podcast, and today we are celebrating the 100th anniversary of the publication of Emily Post's Etiquette. And I am joined by Lizzie Post, Emily's great-great-granddaughter, who has just written a completely new edition, which has just been published. So Lizzie, let's just get back into our discussion, and I want to ask you probably the biggest question of all here— just what is etiquette? Uh, I'm curious how Emily defined it. I'm curious how you define it now. And I know that you do a lot of work myth-busting around etiquette. So could you just for all out there clarify what this is? So etiquette can mean lots of different things to lots of different people. To some, it is about secret rules and exclusive communities. And we don't really subscribe to that version of etiquette at Emily Post or the Emily Post Institute. We think that etiquette really is for everyone and that it's a combination of principles that we live by combined with the manners of the day that really come together to form etiquette itself. So there's, there's lots of different avenues to pursue, but at Emily Post, we really think that it's made up of what we call principles and then, of course, manners. And principles 
are really, we base our principles on, on three words, three ideas, and they are consideration, respect, and honesty. And that at the heart of all of our etiquette advice, you should be able to find those three things, if not at least two of them at the heart of the advice. <laughs> and I think um, those pieces really, they create a foundation that whether you know the norms of the day or not, or the norms of the culture you're entering or not, that you're going to have a pretty good shot at treating people well and hopefully being treated well by others. If you are operating from a place of consideration for yourself and those around you, respect for yourself and those around you, and honesty for with, within yourself and with those around you, that that'll, that'll get you pretty far on its own. But what we find is really interesting and what basically keeps my job alive is the <laughs> fact that manners change over time. You know, Emily wrote about chaperones and which side somebody walked on. And we just don't do a lot of that stuff today. I mean, the walk on which side of the street or which side of the sidewalk, sure, but which side of each other based on where we are, that's really different. We don't really have chaperones, you know, and it, it's interesting to see how things change. But manners are really subject to time and they are subject to culture. There's a quote that you include in the new edition, which I just dearly love. And I believe it's a quote of, of Emily. So please correct yeah. me here. But it's whenever two people come together and their behavior affects one another, you have etiquette. It is not some rigid code of manners. It's simply how person's lives touch one another. I think that's beautiful. That is Emily, right? That is Emily. And that is, it is one of our favorite quotes. I wish I could figure out where it came from. There's still a bit of mystery around that, but it is what she said about etiquette. And I think it paints a very clear picture from the get-go that Emily Post etiquette has never been about rigid rules or, you know, wrapping someone with a wooden spoon when their elbow hits the table. So when you sat down to rewrite, because this is not just a revision, this is a whole rewrite, you started from square one again. Where did you start and what did you think about? So we started with greetings and introduction. I mean, first we define etiquette and we always knew we were going to do that in our book. But then it was like, well, what's the first thing we need to figure out? How would you greet people? Once you greeted them, how could you introduce them? And, you know, once we're through introductions, let's talk about longer conversations and all of the different methods of communication and the points of etiquette with that. And then now that we've got each other introduced, you know, we've, we've got ourselves greeting each other, introduced and talking. What are the different times we might do that with each other? You know, and oh, and we have to, of course, present ourselves well. So what, what do we think about when it comes to our attire and our appearance? And it's kind of like dominoes. One one goes and the next leads to the next, to the next, to the next. But just the issue of introducing each other now is so fraught, right? Because, <laughs> you know, do you shake hands, as you mentioned, or do we fist bump or do we, you know, right. there, there are issues. And also you introduce mixes. Yeah, I believe I'm pronouncing yes. that correctly as opposed, it I mean, makes. I remember in the 70s when, when Ms. was new and that was a huge revelation. Yeah. And now we have mixes. I mean, just the how we connect with each other, those initial interactions. This was a whole new subject area that you had to put in and look at, right? Yes. Yes, it, it definitely was. We tend to go the inclusive direction with things as best we can. And to us, mix 
A was already in such great use. It, it was included in the 19th edition, although we did have someone point out to us that it, it didn't get included correctly in a certain reference in the book. So it was really important for us to get it completely right this time or as right as it can be at any point in time. Can you define it just in case any listeners are unfamiliar? Sure. It's a mix is a gender inclusive title, social title. So we've got the titles of Mr. and Ms., which represent individual men and women, but we don't have a title for those who don't identify as men, men and women. And so over the past decade, mix, MX period, has become that title. And we were, we were at the Emily Post Institute, we are thrilled about it because it gives, it gives this group of people who don't identify as Mr.'s or Mrs some title that allows them to use their name formally. And I think that it's at this point used frequently enough that we felt really comfortable just having it front and center in the book. You know, one of the things that really strikes me is Emily was very close to her public and her audience because of her radio show. Yes. They heard her. All of America heard her. And they communicated with her, obviously, via letters and asked questions. You do exactly the same thing. You're very close to your your audience through the podcast. Yeah. What is the most common question you get? Oh, my gosh. I feel like there are common questions for categories, but I do think that questions about gifting are really common as our host guest roles. We get a lot of questions about host guest roles and a ton of questions about specifically host guest roles in weddings. And, you know, how do you accommodate that person who is saying they're going to bring their kids when it's a no kids wedding? How do you handle dietary restrictions? How do you handle a, a bridesmaid who's concerned about budgets and things like that. And which is, by the way, to be respectful about it. It's not to just tell her to, to get a credit card and go into debt for you. But it's there's there's a lot, I think, that, that host guest roles end up connecting to that, that when you boil them down, this is classic host guest dance type etiquette. And it's tough because we want to both be welcoming and yet we don't want to feel tread upon. And we want to be good guests, but we don't want to be bored or uncomfortable in someone else's home or not be able to eat something. So I feel like host guest stuff comes up the most. I am just not surprised. So one of my last questions, really, Lizzie, is that if Emily were sitting right here today with us, what would you most want to ask her or tell her? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> so many things. I feel like I would probably want to ask her more questions about her own life because as a family member who just has the the archive materials that we have, I feel like there's so much missing as to who she was. Even though we have so much and Laura Claridge's book really is incredible. It's a, I think it's it would probably be a lot more of the personal stuff about her that I would want to know. Because I got to say, writing Etiquette from Scratch, which was the first time we have ever done that in the Post family, I felt like I actually answered a lot more of my work questions toward her than I ever had before. And so I want to know the personal stuff. <laughs> Is there anything that you would like her to ask you? I think I would I would love it if she was interested in what the process of writing this new book was like for us, because in our family, she's the only other one who's ever done it. We've never, re to our knowledge, we've never rewritten it from scratch. And so I would hope she'd be really interested in that. 
And I think she'd be really interested in the podcast. So I hope she would ask me about that, too. (laughs) Well, of all the other things that are so similar between you, you two, that's certainly one of them, I think. So, Lizzie, after our discussion today, which I have so loved, my last question for you is, what is your hope for this book? What are you hoping that Etiquette, the Centennial Edition, will do? Hello, Carl, you are such a great host. Thank you for this wonderful interview. I've had a great time. And my hope for this book is that it will make etiquette feel even more accessible. I know a lot of people say they have a lot of social anxiety. We we all have some. And a lot of people, I think, especially after the past two years, have a lot more than they used to feel in life. And my hope is that they will pick up this beautiful, beautiful book and find a sense of ease and confidence when they decide to engage with the world around them and maybe even in their home lives too. But my my real hope is that this book helps to ease anxiety and it that it that it feels really inclusive for a lot of people. I love that. And and also this sense of honesty. That's what I so got, you know, oh, from it is this notion of just being honest with each other. If you don't know something, just ask. You can, you know, it's the intention that matters so much more. Do you agree with that? Absolutely. And I'll tell you a last Emily quote to end on is that she really encouraged us to embrace the power of the words, I don't know. And that it's really okay to own those words, whether you're in conversation with someone at a cocktail party or there's something that you have to do because uh, someone's hit a life milestone and you've never been through it before. That just saying, I don't know, and then trying to find out some answers is really, really, really empowering. I think it takes a lot of strength to say I don't know, right, in yeah. in this yeah. world. <laughs> oh, Lizzie, thank you so much for joining me and being on The Gilded Gentleman today. There's so much we can talk about, and I hope we have many, many more conversations. You're just going to have to come back. Would you consider I that? I would love to. <laughs> I've had such a good time, and you're right. I feel like we only got through half of half of all the stuff we had talked about. So I would, I would love to come back and share more, and I'm so excited. I'm just so glad you're doing this podcast, Carl. I love listening to it in the evenings. It has been such a great comfort as I'm walking around with my pup. Well, I am so honored to have you be a part of it. Thank you so much. And uh, you'll be back for sure. (laughs) And to my listeners, make sure to subscribe to Lizzie and Dan's podcast, Awesome Etiquette. And do make sure to get a copy of their new book, Etiquette, the Centennial Edition, just published by 10 Speed Press and on sale now. Thank you all so much for being with us today. I hope you have enjoyed this episode of The Gilded Gentleman, and make sure you subscribe so you won't miss a single show. The Gilded Gentleman is produced by Bowery Boys Media, and this episode was edited and produced by Kieran Gannon. I invite you to join The Gilded Gentleman on patreon.com slash thegildedgentleman. Your support truly helps me to continue to do the show. Patrons have access to bonus content, advance notice of Gilded Gentleman events, among other benefits. So I'll see you soon. And after all, what's life without a little glint of gold? This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. 
So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com.